0: Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime Podcast. I'm Ishwarya, your host for this episode.
1: And I'm Arayan.
0: Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon and subscribe for amazing exclusive features like merch, awesome extra episodes, early access episodes, video calls with us and more. To help the podcast out and to avail these benefits, go to www.patreon.com slash desicrime and select a tier that works best for you. For this episode, we'd also like to thank our main source, Leslie Erdwin's documentary titled India's Daughter, which was banned in India when it first came out. That ban prompted Leslie to flee the country and move to the UK for her own safety. The clips that you hear in this episode are all from the documentary. Did you know a woman is raped every 16 minutes in India? That adds up to 90 rapes a day, 630 rapes a week, and 2,700 rapes a month. These are the official government figures from the year 2019. But most of these rapes never make it to the front page of your newspapers or the screens of your TVs. They get lost among thousands of other news pieces. But occasionally comes a case that shocks a country to its core, a case that brings millions to the streets in a fight for justice. In 2012, we all heard of a rape like that. This is the story of how India's daughter was raped in the country's capital and left to die. This is the story of Jyoti Singh.
1: 2,700 rapes a month, ishwara that is a Mm -hmm. staggering figure in and of itself.
0: Absolutely.
1: But the sad fact is that it doesn't paint the full picture of the situation. 2,700 rapes are the official number, which discount a vast swath of rapes that occur in India. For example, rapes that occur in rural India or in certain milieus of urban India, that just simply are never reported, right? So they mm-hmm. don't get into the official count. Then we have a whole subset of rape called marital rape, the laws around which might have recently changed, but for the longest time, marital rape wasn't even acknowledged by the Indian legal system. And Absolutely. so 2,700 rapes, huge, staggering number, but it doesn't do justice to the overall figure and the plight of women in India.
0: No, not at all. And 2,700 rapes is a number of rapes. It's not the number that depicts the cultural problem. It depicts a huge problem for women, how safe our streets are, all of that. It doesn't depict accurately what's going wrong in the minds of the people in the country to lead to that number. And that's my problem Mm -hmm. with that number as well, that it fails to take into account what's actually going wrong. In Indian mentality to lead to that number. And this for me is by no means a lighthearted episode. It's it's deeply, deeply disturbing. I remember the day that the rape took place. My father was posted in Pathan court and there was actually a party at my house and my cousins were over. And I remember really late in the night, we all got tired of hearing the loud music. So my cousin and I decided to exit the house and just kind of hang out on the street outside our house. And she pulled out her phone and read a news article, 23-year-old young girl raped in a bus in. In Delhi and thrown on the side of a road. That day, that news title, this specific case of rape has stuck with me since that day, since I was just 12 years old. And I think it did to a lot of other Indians as well. I also want to say that I usually think it's a little redundant for us to give a graphic content warning before our episodes. I mean, it's a true crime podcast. Everyone knows this is going to be a conversation of murder and blood and bodies and wounds and rape. But this episode is unique. If you're not okay listening to graphic descriptions of violence and rape, I suggest you sit this episode out because I've personally tried to be very accurate with all of the details of the incident. This is going to be a very hard episode to record, but also a very hard episode to listen to. So Aran, let's get into this story. This story begins in a location unlike any of our other stories. It begins inside an airplane on the 27th of December 2012. Prime Minister Manmohan Singh had ordered this airplane to fly a 23-year-old Indian woman from New Delhi's Safdarjung Hospital to Singapore's Mount Elizabeth Hospital. This was a controversial move on his part. There was no guarantee this 23-year-old would survive the six-hour-long flight. In those six hours, she suffered a cardiac arrest and lost her pulse and her blood pressure for three whole minutes. Yet, somehow, she survived. She was alive when the airplane touched down in Singapore. This woman was being called India's daughter all over newspapers in India. But did India's daughter live to tell her own story? Who was this 23-year-old? What had happened to her? Why the helicopter? Why the cardiac arrest? Why the public interest? To answer all of these questions, we're going to go back to the 16th of December 2012 when a private school bus was on the streets of New Delhi. White in colour with the words Yadav painted on it in green, it looked like every single bus we've all seen thousands of times in India. Maybe some of us have even been on a bus like this one. The entire week, this bus had been used to take school children to and from their homes to their South Delhi school. But on the night of the 16th of December, a Sunday, this bus had six men inside. There was 30-year-old Ram Singh, his 26-year-old brother Mukesh Singh, who was driving the bus, a 28-year-old unemployed married man and father named Akshay Thakur, a 20-year-old gym instructor named Vinay Sharma, a 19-year-old fruit seller named Pawan Gupta, and a 17-year-old boy named Muhammad Afroz. All of them were born into abject poverty, with families so poor that their parents didn't wash their dishes because they didn't have food for which to wash their dishes. They grew up never attending school, only learning to work from ages as young as 11 to feed the people in their houses. Four of these six men lived in a small slum in Delhi's Arkhipuram, where love, respect, and equality were luxuries. They were the kind of concepts one only thought of when one figured out how to survive first. On the evening of the 16th, before the men got onto the bus, they had been drinking together. They were partying. Many have come forward to describe these men as aggressive, vile, and disrespectful. For example, gym instructor Vinay Sharma was known to be on steroids. There were times where he would take stronger doses than he was supposed to, which would then sort of turn him into a different, very angry person. He was known for beating people up and stalking and troubling women. In fact, drinking alcohol had the same effect on Vinay. He would lose his cool and suddenly turn aggressive. And that night he was drinking along with his five other friends.
1: Yeah, for those of you who don't know, if Vinay was taking testosterone, which is uh, anabolic Uh steroid, or any other anabolic steroid which acutely increases testosterone, it fundamentally changes not only your personality, but mood swings and anger and rage. I mean, you're essentially recreating the situation of being in a teenage body when a boy is going through all these hormonal changes.
0: No, absolutely. And that is the phenomena that all of his friends described seeing in him. He got into fights all the time. He was known to break people's ribs just at a whim when he felt agitated. So he was clearly known for being this really strong figure in a gym that was sort of out of control when he was on these drugs. Now, like I said, the men that night were drinking. The men also knew that they weren't allowed to take that bus out on a Sunday evening. The bus belonged to a man who ran a transport company, and these six men worked for him. They helped clean the bus, drive the bus, maintain the bus, that kind of thing. But they knew the bus was not theirs to take for a ride like that. In fact, because it was a private bus, it wasn't allowed to pick up public passengers at all. Added to that was the fact that the bus had tinted windows, making it illegal to drive around in Delhi to begin with. Despite that, though, the men wanted to have some fun that night. After finishing up multiple bottles of alcohol in no state to drive, they decided to take the bus to GB Road, Delhi's infamous red light district with hundreds of multi story brothels and more than 1,000 prostitutes. But they never went to GB Road that night because they saw a young woman waiting at a bus stop. That was enough for them. At 9.30 in the night, the bus arrived at the Munirka bus station. At the bus stop were two people, 23-year-old Jyoti Singh and 25-year-old Avindra Pratab Pandey. The two had decided to go out together for a night out. They were watching Life of Pi at the PVR in Select City Walk. When they got out of their movie, they had taken a rickshaw to Munirka and were waiting for a bus to go to Dwarka when the white bus with the six men showed up. The two had asked the driver, we need to go to Dwarka, is that where you're going? The driver said yes and the couple got in, paying the driver 10 rupees each for taking them home. Little did they know, the act of stepping onto this bus would forever change their lives. But before we get into what happened inside that bus on that fateful night, I want to take you further back in time to tell you the story of who Jyoti Singh really was. Not what happened to her on that bus or whether or not she survived. I want to tell you the story of how she lived. For that, let's go back to the year 1989 when Jyoti was born to Asha Devi and Badrinath Singh. This was an incredibly poor family but a family of honest, hardworking and frankly very progressive people who were just trying to live a peaceful life. Badrinath Singh was a worker at the Delhi airport and Asha Devi used to take up small jobs to help support her family. When their daughter was born, they named her Jyoti because they said it felt like she brought a new light into their life. It was their first daughter after all. While the rest of their family was disappointed that the couple had had a daughter and not a son, Asha and Badrinath distributed sweets and celebrated the birth of their baby girl. They were going to give her the best life they possibly could. Now, Jyoti grew up a curious child. You know, those quintessential young kid questions that adults don't necessarily know how to answer. <laughs> like, why is the moon that color and why is the water transparent?
1: And what is the meaning of life? And when will the suffering <laughs> end? <laughs>
0: and how her <our> baby is born? <laughs> exactly. Those were the questions that Jyoti grew up asking. Just constantly questioning the world around her. That is how her parents describe her. They say she always wanted to be a doctor. Her parents had asked her why not an advocate or a teacher. But in Jyoti's mind, there was no job more noble than that of a doctor.
1: First set of Indian parents whose response to their daughter wanting to become a doctor is, you know, you could become something else, you know, we're we're liberal parents. I know That's not the only box you need to funnel yourself into.
0: No, big respect for Asha and Badrinath. I really (laughs) love them. (laughs) But to be able to become a doctor, Jyoti pleaded with her parents and made them use all of the money that they had saved up for her marriage on her education instead. And her parents did it happily. They sold all of their ancestral land just to educate her. Through her work, Jyoti got admitted to the Sai Institute of Paramedical and Applied Sciences in Dehradun. To further support herself and pay her own hostel fees, she took up multiple jobs. She worked on her English and got a job at an international call center where she worked from 8pm to 4am and then got a job at her university too. Her tuition teacher says she maybe slept a total of 4 hours every night and she did it with a smile on her face. A girl can do anything she would tell people when they asked her how she managed it all. It was her dream, her life's goal, to start a hospital in her ancestral village where there was no medical services. She wanted the women of her village in particular to have proper access to modern medicine and technology. Jyoti was in Delhi on the 16th of December with her parents and not in Deradun because she had just finished and aced her final exams. In fact, she only went to see the movie that night because she was starting a medical internship the upcoming Monday. She wanted to have a nice night out before it all started. She wanted to take a break before life took over again. I wish I could say that had she stayed in Dehradun, things would have been different. But they wouldn't have. There would have been a different face, a different name, a different story of the victim. But there still would have been a victim. So, course, the final paper आई थी
1: तो बहुत खुश
0: रहती थी रिलैक्स महसूस करती थी क्योंकि अब कोर्स खत्म हो गया था कहते थे पापा मम्मी आप लोग अब चिंता मत करो आपकी बेटी डॉक्टर बनके आ गई है अब सब कुछ ठीक हो जाएगा तो ठीक क्या भगवान को ही अच्छा नहीं लगा भगवान ने ही सब कुछ खत्म कर दिया Quote, she had just finished her course and came back home. She used to be very happy and relaxed because her course was over. She used to say, Mom, Dad, don't worry. Your daughter has returned as a doctor. Everything will be okay now. How could it be okay when God didn't want it to be okay? God finished everything that day. These were the words of Jyoti's mother in the audio above. When Jyoti got into the bus that night in 2012, the men in the bus didn't care about any of this, about her life. They didn't care that she was someone's daughter, someone's sister. Forget all of that, they didn't care she was a person. This is what the men in the bus thought of her and thought of all women in general. <laughs> Quote, men and women aren't equal. Housework and housekeeping is what a girl's job is. Not going to a disco or a bar at night, doing wrong things, wearing revealing clothes. Only 20% of the girls you'll find will be good. End quote. These were the words of one of the men on the bus that night, 26-year-old Mukesh Singh. And Jyoti, according to him, was not one of the women in that 20% because she was out at night watching a movie with her friend. This is where I also want to clarify that Jyoti and Avindra were never dating. They had a purely platonic friendship. Avindra has himself come forward to say, There was no question of me marrying her because we belonged to different castes. She never expressed a desire to marry. She was concentrating on her studies and wanted a job first.
1: I will add, though, in my research of this case, there is still speculation on this question and exactly what was Avindra's response to the entire saga. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to you know, completely disqualify the claims that were made, but just, just again, like an asterisk that I usually give, just an asterisk for listeners to know that there is still speculation on this front.
0: No, sure, there is a chance that Avindra might be lying about this too for whatever his own privacy reasons, yeah. for the privacy of Jyoti, for just the kind of hate that was coming their way for being boyfriend and girlfriend mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Delhi. Absolutely. Um, so there might be all of those reasons. But according to Avindra, there was no case in which he could have seen the two of them ending up together. She was not his person. Now the two were inside the bus. They sat down together, talking, looking out of the window when suddenly Avindra realized that the bus had taken a turn it wasn't supposed to. It was clear that the men had locked the doors of the bus from inside. The windows were tinted dark black and nobody could see them from the outside. The lights inside the bus were turned off. It all seemed weird to him so he decided to confront the driver, Mukesh Singh, asking why he took the wrong turn. The men took this as their sign to start taunting the couple. They asked the two if they were dating, why they were out together so late in the night, where their families were. The tone the men were taking, the way they were misbehaving, agitated avindra he told the men it was none of their business and that comment somehow turned into a physical fight between avindra and the men but the men had rusted iron rods and bats that they used to beat avindra up and there were five of them avindra was outnumbered they beat him up so much he was almost unconscious eventually he hid behind the seats in the back as the men made their way to jyoti they then began to beat her up once they had beaten her up enough, once she was weak and wasn't fighting back as much, the men dragged her by her hair to the back of the bus where one by one by one they proceeded to rape her. The first man on the bus to rape her wasn't even a man. It was 17-year-old Muhammad Afroz, the one who is infamously referred to as a juvenile in this case. Then went 30-year-old Ram Singh. Driver Mukesh Singh could hear Drothi screaming in the back. She kept pleading for the men to stop, pleading for someone to help, but nobody did. The men kept telling Mukesh Singh to not stop the bus, to keep driving. The men went back to rape her, multiple times. They took back with them the bat they had and the rusted L-shaped iron rod, all of which they used not just to hit her, but also to rape her. But the men deny ever using the iron rod on her. Regardless of all of that, though, it was Muhammad Afroz, the youngest among the men, who led to Jyoti's most severe injuries. When he was done raping her, he claims he tried to get rid of any semen remains inside her body. To do that, he found a screwdriver lying around in the bus and wrapped it up in a cloth and decided to put the screwdriver inside her. He was trying to have the cloth soak up the remains in her, the evidence in her body. When he did that and eventually pulled the object out, the cloth didn't come out. In trying to remove the cloth too, he instead ended up pulling her intestines out. I just want you to think about this for a moment. How much force, how much disregard and how much agitation is needed to pull someone's intestines out, to destroy somebody's body like that as though it was yours to destroy? I don't need to be a woman to say I cannot fathom the pain she must have experienced in that moment.
1: You know, I'll give you an uh, example of what an ordinary conversation surrounding rape looks like in an Indian household pre-Nirbhaya. Mm-hmm. When a kid asks mom after reading a headline, mom, what is rape? And the answer you usually get in a very uncomfortable tone because it's a sexually charged topic is um, it's when a man misbehaves with a woman. At least that was true for my childhood. Whenever I ask questions about rape, the environment in the household became weird, right? Right. And I understand the systemic reasons for that. But what you just described, Ashwarya, that's not misbehaving with a woman. No, it's not. And kids in India need to know what rape is. It's not harassment, it's not stalking, it's a perverse form of torture. That's what rape is. And as long as Indian households don't talk about that in blatant terms, we are not going to make a step in the right direction. And Nirbhaya's case played that role in changing the conversation around rape at a national level, but even fundamentally at a familiar level.
0: No, absolutely. That's 100% correct. And I think the problem with making rape a taboo conversation to have has an implicit assumption in there that it's the woman's fault that if this conversation was to be had, it's shameful for the woman. If we all acknowledge that it was indeed just like any other crime or perverse act for which it is the criminal who's at fault, we have no reason to shy away from this conversation.
1: I also think, I mean, just to be fair, I think that is one reason, 100%. But there's also this, in Indian and the subcontinental Desi society, just conversations around sex, it, there doesn't need to be a victim or a perpetrator involved. It's just our Absolutely. our very uh, social stigma surrounding sex as a topic is so it's so widespread and so ingrained in us that rape just then becomes an artifact of sex. And therefore, as long as it falls within the umbrella of sex, and I know I've know i said that word many times now, but <laughs> yeah. it's a taboo subject to talk about. And that starts at a fundamentally a school level. I remember like our biology classes, you know, uh, around which reproduction was such an uncomfortable environment in the school. To, at times the teacher completely glossed over the chapter saying, go read it yourself. Because right. of the discomfort within the Indian society, it's not something we talk about.
0: And that's, I think, primarily why I decided to make this a graphic episode is because I don't fully understand what the point in glossing over
1: percent
0: is. We've all heard of the case and we've all seen the outcry. There is no reason for us not to know what mm-hmm. that outcry was the consequence of. Why did people react the way they did? Why did the government and the Supreme Court react the way they did? Why was the country up in arms with thousands and thousands of people out on the road? We need to know why this case changed the country and all of that is in the details.
1: Ashura, this case shook me to my core when it happened, so much so that it's the first and only protest I have ever participated in. I oh, remember being I out with a, yeah, I remember being out with, you know, on the candlelight marches, handing out pamphlets and I was a middle schooler, but this case, I mean, you're narrating it right now. I have goosebumps from agony and sorrow. That I, I remember this case all too deeply.
0: And there is so much to remember about this case and I hope this episode is a way of never ever forgetting what had happened that day, of always remembering the cost we pay for creating a culture where women are viewed this way. So, the juvenile, 17-year-old Mohammed Afroz, had just put a screwdriver inside this woman's body in an attempt to conceal evidence. In trying to do that, he had pulled her intestines out. The moment he realized what he had done, though, he panicked. "'She's dead! We need to throw her out!' he screamed at the other men. The men together tried to open the back door of the bus to toss her body out, but the back door was jammed. They couldn't get it open. So they dragged her again by her hair, this time to the front of the bus, and threw her out from the front door. Muhammad Afroz even picked up her intestines, wrapped them up in a random piece of cloth found on the bus, and threw them out with her. They then threw Avindra out from the same door." The men knew what they had to do. They discussed going away to different parts of the country, maybe back to their ancestral villages. They decided they wouldn't rat each other out if they got caught. They would simply deny that they had anything to do with the incident. They drove the bus back home in a hurry. Mukesh Singh, the driver, even said that all of his alcohol suddenly wore off. He could hardly control the steering wheel from how scared he was. Once they reached home, they got together to clean the bus. There was blood everywhere, from the seats to the floor to the clothes of the men. It looked like a murder scene. In so many ways though, it was a murder scene. After they cleaned the bus, the men just went to sleep, while Jyoti and Avindra lay on the side of a random road in Delhi, both without any clothes on. Avindra tried to get up to ask for help, waving his arms around, urging someone to stop. And people did stop. Multiple people stopped. But they all looked at the two and left without doing anything, without even calling the cops. Finally, it was the highway patrol van that spotted the two. The man driving the van ran to a hotel across the street and bought a bed sheet and a bottle of water for them. He then called the police, who took the two to Saddarjung Hospital. At the hospital, it was revealed that Jyoti was injured in her abdomen, her intestines, her uterus and her genitals due to penetration by a blunt object, the L-shaped metal rod the men deny ever using. When she was brought to the hospital that night, the doctor who treated her said that she was bleeding heavily from her vagina, but she was conscious. Quote, she was describing everything in clear detail. She was slapped in her face, kicked in her abdomen. There were multiple bite marks all over her face, over her limbs, over her lips. End quote, said Dr. Rashmi Ahuja. In fact, Jyoti was obviously in pain and describing all of this, but she wasn't crying at all. But even though she wasn't crying and was conscious, the doctors realised that Jyoti wasn't going to survive more than three days. While all of this was happening, Jyoti's parents were going crazy at home trying to call her, but the men had stolen both Jyoti and Avindra's phones. Then, her parents received a call from Sabdarjung, urging them to come over as soon as they could. When the couple crossed over into the hospital, what they assumed to be a maybe serious accident turned out to be any human being's worst nightmare come true. The first time Jyoti cried that night was when she saw her parents. News about the brutal rape had already started to spread like wildfire across the country the night of the rape. That was the night I heard it, sitting hundreds of miles away from New Delhi. The police knew they needed to act fast. Both Jyoti and Avindra had described the bus to the police. And so, the police started the same place all modern investigations start. From a hunt for CCTV footage. And the police found more than enough. Through multiple highway and hotel cameras, they pieced together the route of the bus. And within just 24 hours, with the help of the CCTV footage and a tip... They found not only the bus, but also Ram Singh, who was inside the bus when the police found it.
1: We were able to arrest the first accused. We were able to identify the bus within a span time of 24 hours. We checked all the hotels along the route. And on one of the hotels, there was one particular camera which was facing towards the road. The CCTV footage of that camera, we noticed that there was a bus which had crossed that area twice which was unusual for a bus which was going on a highway. And a closer examination of that bus, we came to know that this bus is a school bus. These were the clues because of which we were able to narrow down our search to 50, 60 such buses.
0: The police caught Ram Singh and not once did he deny the fact that he committed the crime. He also revealed to the police that three other men of the six lived in the same slum in Arkhipuram as him. And that is how the police caught the other three, who made no attempts to run away to other locations. The police ended up using dental forensics in this case, matching the teeth patterns of the men to the bite marks found on Jyoti's body. And needless to say, one by one by one, they were all a match. The police had now found four of the six rapists. Eventually, the police caught the fifth rapist, 28-year-old Akshay, who had a wife and a son back in his village. Akshay had gone back to his village after the rape when his father was called by the police and told about what his son had done. The police told the father to bring his son back to the police station. And in a move that is deeply commendable, Akshay's father personally took his son and surrendered him to the cops. Wow. Akshay's wife, on the other hand, Punita Devi, refused to believe that her husband could ever commit such a crime. Lastly, a few days after the incident, the last accused, the juvenile 17-year-old Mohammed Afroz, was also arrested from the Anand Vihar Terminal in Delhi. All six of the men on the bus that night were now in police custody. Within those first 24 hours of the crime, while the first four men were being caught, the enormous Students' Union at Jawaharlal Nehru University decided to stage a mass protest, bringing a record number of citizens out to the streets of Delhi. Nobody wanted to stand back and sit quietly. Nobody wanted to let Delhi continue to be called India's rape capital. People screamed slogans of freedom and justice, chanting names of other rape victims who had never received proper justice. The country was on fire. But while the country was on fire, Jyoti Singh was at the time being called nirbhaya or fearless to protect her privacy and she was fighting for her life. She had undergone surgery after surgery in which most of her intestines were removed. She constantly had a 103 degree fever and kept internally bleeding due to sepsis. Despite all of these injuries, however, the doctor said it was a miracle she had survived that long. Not only had she survived, but her condition was described to be stable. There was hope. Some of Jyoti's last words to her mother were, I don't want to die. But Jyoti's mother has come forward to say that she knew in her heart that her daughter was gone. And she was right. As Jyoti's condition worsened, the Prime Minister decided to have her sent to Singapore to one of the world's best trauma care and transplant hospitals. But something went wrong on that airplane ride to Singapore. Jyoti had a cardiac arrest, and even though she was alive when the airplane landed in Singapore, she never regained consciousness. At the Singapore hospital, her condition further worsened as she developed an abdominal infection, now had serious brain damage, and also had pneumonia. Then, on the 29th of December 2012, 17 days after she was raped, Jyoti passed away. She was flown back to India, where she was cremated, not with shame, but with honour and respect. Little did she know that she was going to become the reason for millions of women's hope and fight for equality. Jyoti's death did not mark the end. It marked the beginning. The six men were now to face trial. Before the trial even began, though, one of the rapists, Ram Singh, allegedly hung himself in his 15 by 12 feet cell, cell number 3 in the Tihar jail. But there was a possibility he was murdered. To be a rapist in an Indian prison, in any prison in the world, in fact, is bad. Ram Singh was regularly assaulted and beaten up by other inmates for what he had done. For his own security, he was put in a special cell, where his body was found at 5.45am on the 11th of March 2013. While Ram Singh hanging himself was justice, it felt like the easy way out. The focus now had to shift to the remaining criminals. And the verdict by the court was loud, clear and unanimous. The death penalty for four of the six rapists, for committing a crime that was rare, uniquely heinous and needed to be punished. Now, why four of the six rapists? Because the fifth one was the 17-year-old juvenile who could not have been tried like the others. He received the maximum sentence for a juvenile. Three years in a juvenile home, after which he was set free. He now lives somewhere in South India where he works as a cook in a restaurant with a new name and a new identity. During the trial, however, one key detail was revealed that is worth mentioning. The men revealed one singular motive, their reason for committing their crime. And that reason was their mentality. The men spoke openly of wanting to hit Avindra and rape Jyoti to teach them a lesson. The lesson was that a woman's place was in her home, with her body covered and her eyes lowered. Driver Mukesh Singh, the only one of the six who agreed to be interviewed, said the following. Quote, You can't clap with one hand. It takes two. A decent girl won't roam around at nine in the night. A girl is far more responsible for rape than a boy is. We thought we could teach them a lesson and they won't complain out of shame. When being raped, she shouldn't fight back. She should stay silent and allow the rape. If she hadn't screamed, we would have raped her and dropped her off. We would have only beaten the guy up. People say when you are hanged, they put a rope around your neck. Your eyes pop out and your tongue sticks out. Giving us the death penalty will make things more dangerous for girls. Now, when they rape, they won't leave the girl like we did. They will kill her. They've made this such a big issue. People have committed bigger crimes and nothing has happened to them. I know someone who raped a girl and took her eyes out. Sometimes they put acid on girls. There was another rape where they burned the girl alive. Wasn't that wrong? If ours is wrong, that is wrong too. End quote.
1: And Mukesh, for what it's worth, um, that is wrong and you are wrong too. You know, Ashwara, this mentality, you know, its worst manifestation is of course what happened to Jyoti. Mm-hmm. I see a manifestation of this in a daily basis, in the DMs of many if not most, of my Indian female friends and take you, for example, the kinds of texts that Indian men, and I'm calling my own ilk out, uh, it's so heinous. It's so perverted. The texts range from, you know, rape threats to salacious messages, and it's one after the other. After the other, you know, I hate stereotypes, ashwara Obviously, being a brown man, you know, out in the West, there are of course a lot of stereotypes you feel that might be directed towards you, and you know, yeah. you want to call out uh, racism when it's true. But I'll be honest: one burgeoning stereotype of Indian men out in the West is this this Indian male troll, and ashwara that is a stereotype that is not who ha. It is based on a sample size of so many men in India that just don't know how to talk to women and will talk to women as if they're not fellow humans. And the kind of texts my friends receive, Ishwar, I'm sure you have been at the behest of many. So many. It's sometimes just unfathomable.
0: And these trolls exist in real life. I cannot explain to you the amount of situations I've been in, not in India, in a different country where I have been in the company of people of a lot of nationalities, some of them being Indian. And the most impolite the most misbehaving have been the Indians. Aryan knows of an incident that happened to me while I was in Thailand where we were in a group of this Kazakhistani couple and this Greek couple and these Thai people and these Americans and a group of Indian men and the Indian men wouldn't stop making lewd remarks for all of the women in the group in Hindi And and obviously I understood them but nobody else could understand them. Like this is just a common phenomena and I don't understand. It needs to change.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But Aryan, if these words by Mukesh Singh sounded horrible, it's interesting that the two lawyers that were representing these six men somehow came out looking worse than the rapists themselves. M.L. Sharma, one of the lawyers of the men, said, quote, The moment she came out of her house with a boy who was neither her husband nor her brother, she left her morality and her reputation as a doctor as well as a girl's morality in her house. She came out just like a woman. A female is just like a flower. It gives a good-looking, soft, pleasant performance. But on the other hand, a man is just like a thorn. Strong. Tough enough. That flower always needs protection. If you put that flower in a gutter, it is spoiled. If you put it in a temple, it's worshipped.
1: Aishwarya is laughing angrily. Uh, a thing, I can't believe these words. I am laughing angrily right now. There's so much anger coursing through my blood, but this is this is wildly hilarious, stupid.
0: Bruh, I don't want to be a flower. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jesus, dude. Jesus. So
0: so bad. He continues. A woman should not be put on the street like food. A lady is more precious than a gem, than a diamond. It is up to you how you want to keep that diamond in your hand. If you put your diamond on the street, certainly a dog will take it out. You can't stop it. A man would like to create damage. He will put his hand forcefully inside. It's just like a kind of action. A woman means immediately there is sex in the man's eyes. That girl was with some unknown boy who took her on a date. In our society, we never allow our girls to come out of the house after 6.30 in the evening with any unknown person. Jyoti and Avindra left our Indian culture. They were under the imagination of the filmy culture in which they can do anything. We have the best culture. In our culture, there is no place for a woman. They
1: didn't leave um, Indian culture behind. They left this lawyer's culture behind. Whatever this lawyer thinks of women represents and what God he thinks of what mm-hmm. he thinks of women the fact that he thinks sex is the only thing that comes to a man's eyes when they see a woman it says more about you him yeah uh you 50 year old man with a law degree you know we think education is the cure to some of these things but clearly this is a lawyer this is an educated man mm-hmm. who's at you know financially distinguished from the uh, perpetrators he's representing. And clearly the mentality is pervading across cultures, across classes, and across education levels. And so to blame this as an education issue only is a very purist and simplistic way of looking at this widespread problem in the Indian psyche.
0: It just keeps getting worse, Aryan. If the diamonds and the flower and the thorn analogy was not enough for you, the other lawyer, A.P. Singh, just keeps going on. He says, If very important, if very necessary, she should go outside. But she should go out with family members like her uncle, her father, her mother, her grandfather, her grandmother, etc., etc., so she should not go in the night hours with her boyfriend. If my daughter or sister was to engage in premarital marital activities and disgraced herself and allowed herself to lose character and face by doing such things, I most certainly have the courage to take this sort of sister or daughter to my farmhouse and in front of my entire family, put petrol on her and light her up on fire."
1: Can we not arrest this man? Can we not use this as a basis for call for violence? Like, isn't this like, no, I'm just I'm not not morally, of course, morally no, reprehensible. Forget morally. This should be legally culpable.
0: <laughs> I'm surprised these, both of these men didn't have their licenses taken away. I cannot fathom right. a situation where lawyers speak like this. Like, I don't know, it, this is beyond me. No, I like crazy. Makes my blood boil. I've written this episode over a long period of time and so I'm not as mad now after reading it for like the hundredth time. But it gives me chills. It's crazy that this might be someone's husband. This might actually be someone's brother, someone's father. I mean, he's obviously someone's son. I can't imagine the way he views these women in his life. Very unfortunate. But if you think this is just a male problem, it's not. Come on, Aishwarya.
1: Stop, stop. Okay, what next?
0: The one married rapist Arian, Akshay, his wife came forward to say the following. Am I not a daughter of this country? Do I not have a right to live? Will there be no more rapes in Delhi? Will you hang all the rapists? I am a woman and a woman is protected by her husband. If he's dead, who will protect her? And for whom will she live? I also don't want to live. Priyantru, my son, is young. He doesn't understand anything. I will strangle him to death too. What else can I do? End quote. This case is simultaneously a simple and a complex one. It's simple because the crime was so horrendous, its committers deserve a clear, special place in hell. The instinctive reaction is that they deserve the punishment that came their way. If there was something worse than the death penalty, they probably deserve that too. It's simple because Jyoti's parents deserve justice for what they had to endure. It's simple because Jyoti deserves justice for what she had to endure. It's simple because millions of women who feel unsafe in India deserve justice for what they have to endure. But this case is complicated because it's not about these six men. In fact, it's not even just about men. It's about the millions. A million men like the defence lawyers in this case and a million women like Punita Devi who still think the way they do. It's about education that the rapists never received. It's about freedom that Jyoti never received. It's about poverty that creates monsters. It's about raising a better generation for which we, people my age and people the age of our listeners, are all collectively responsible.
1: It's appropriate to summon the old adage right now, which is, one death is a tragedy, and a million is a statistic. India is a country of statistics, of some really perverse statistics, and one of them is rape. And so, while Jyoti's story stands out, and stands out for all the right reasons, Let's not forget the rapes that still plague our nation that are happening, as Ashwara said, every 16, 17, 18 minutes. So to all all our female listeners out there, you know, go out of your house after 6.30pm, wear the skimpiest of clothes if you want to, and do whatever the fuck you decide. Because it really doesn't matter what a 50-year-old lawyer or a 20-year-old bus conductor thinks.
0: No, it doesn't. And I hope if this episode achieved any one thing, it was that it empowered some of you out there. My last bit of advice is just this. I hope, I really hope with all of my heart, that we all, a generation of young people, grow up to raise empowered, strong daughters and respectful, strong sons. May we create a country better than the one we inherited, where we don't have to die to be India's daughters.